0: This is Philosophy Bites, with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. In the 1970s, the Australian philosopher Peter Singer popularised the phrase speciesism. You may think that human suffering is more important than animal suffering because humans are more intelligent, say, than animals. But suppose you insist that the suffering of a human matters more than the suffering of a cow, merely in virtue of it being human suffering. Well, that, says Singer, is speciesism. It's similar to racism and sexism, and to be condemned. I've always been convinced by Singer's arguments. The Yale philosopher Shelley Kagan used to be convinced. Shelley Kagan, welcome to Philosophy Bites.
1: Glad to be here.
0: The topic we're going to focus on is speciesism.
1: What is speciesism? What is speciesism? The term speciesism was uh, introduced by Richard Ryder, but was popularized by Peter Singer in an incredibly important and influential book, Animal Liberation, published in 1975. And the basic idea is that speciesism is a kind of prejudice. At least that's the evaluation that those who introduced the term wanted to make. They wanted to make an analogy to racism or sexism. In those cases, one group favors illegitimately, one group over another group, so that racists favour whites over blacks, sexists favour men over women. Similarly, then, the suggestion is that we typically, almost all of us, illegitimately favour humans, members of our own species, over non-humans, other members of the animal kingdom.
0: So for somebody like Peter Singer, human beings having more concern for their own species than, say, dogs... Is a mark of speciesism when the dogs are capable of, say, just as much pain as the human beings?
1: Sure. Here's an example of the sort of thing that's meant to both illustrate speciesism and persuade us that this is an attitude that we all share, or at least almost all of us share. Of course, Singer and others attempting to dissuade us from this view. We do medical experiments, which are often painful, sometimes lethal, often result in disfigurement. We'll readily do these on cats, dogs, primates, certainly chickens, rabbits, lab rats, what have you. But we would never be prepared to do that on a fellow human being. If one's reaction to that is to say, in in our own defense, oh, but humans uh, typically are more intelligent and the like, then we'll say, well, but consider a cognitively impaired human. We can even make them an orphan so that there are no parents who are concerned. And their cognitive capacities are similar, let's say, to that of the dog. We'll nonetheless often be prepared to do the experiment on the dog, but not be prepared to do it on a human. And that's the sign that on the one hand, we're counting human interests here, the capacity to feel pain, more than we would count the similar pains of the dog, say, and that's Singer claimed, a sheer prejudice.
0: So it's alleged to be irrational, that there's something irrational about prioritizing our own species.
1: Right. The charge that Singer made was that this is a prejudice, that there's no moral defense for this position. One needs to, morally speaking, one ought to be counting all like interests equally. And so once one stipulates that the human that we could do the experiment on would feel pain of similar intensity and duration to that of the dog, then there's no moral justification given a principle, I think Singer's name for it was something like the principle of equal consideration of interests, like interests need to be counted equally, or to use another slogan he has, pain is pain.
0: Just to get clear, this wasn't an argument for doing experiments on human beings, was it?
1: No, this was an argument for moving away from doing these sorts of experiments on animals. And of course, it's not just a matter of experiments. More so, it's a matter of the fact that we eat meat that gets raised in factory farms under conditions that cause a tremendous amount of pain and suffering to the animals that we raise. And the fact that we do this is, again, a sign of the widespread attitude that human interests count incredibly in a way that animal interests don't. When I first read all of this some 40 years ago, I found it immediately persuasive. I was immediately convinced that speciesism is a prejudice, just as Singer would have it. And as such, one had to change one's behavior and one's participation in these practices. The striking thing in my own individual case is that coming back to this book, Animal Liberation, almost 35, 40 years later after I'd first read it, I discovered that I no longer found Singer's arguments as persuasive. It was no longer clear to me that Singer had shown that speciesism was a prejudice. And for that matter, it was no longer clear to me that speciesism per se was precisely the view that we actually mostly hold.
0: I think it'd be useful to give an account of just the kind of argument that Peter Singer used to attack speciesism.
1: Sure. Let me sketch out a couple of the main lines. So first is the very analogy to other things that we would all take to be prejudices, like racism and sexism. Singer wants to say, if you agree that those are unacceptable because you're favoring the interests of some over the like interests of others, then you need to say, why isn't it also the case, or to put it more positively, you can then see that it is in fact the case that speciesism is also a mere prejudice. And so one challenge for anybody like me who no longer is convinced that speciesism is a mere prejudice is to say what the difference lies in. Now this is a complicated subject, but to kind of get to the nub of it quickly, I think the telltale sign of a prejudice is when somebody holds a view on grounds that they would not normally think to be adequate for other beliefs of the same sort. Typically, for example, a racist might say that blacks don't count the same, their interests shouldn't count the same, maybe because they're not human or not fully human or they're less intelligent or their character, morally speaking, is inferior, they're not trustworthy, they're shiftless, what have you. Now all of these are empirical claims and the crucial point is not that they're false, the crucial point is rather that the racist believes these on the basis of evidence that they wouldn't normally come close to thinking was adequate if it was a matter of some other belief that they disagreed with. And so that's the sign of a prejudice when you have these double standards in terms of what kind of evidence is adequate. But if I, as a speciesist, say I have the intuition that humans count in a way that mere animals don't, then as long as I'm prepared to say that, yes, moral intuitions have a kind of presumptive moral force, and I use this as evidence in other bits of doing moral philosophy as well, then that's not having this kind of epistemic double standard. And so that's not a mere prejudice. And that shows why one can be a speciesist without being merely prejudiced in the way that the racist or the sexist is.
0: Could you just spell that out, that last point, the idea that there's nothing inconsistent about being prejudice towards your own species if that prejudice is based on your own intuition?
1: There's a complicated, very controversial question within contemporary moral philosophy, more particularly moral epistemology, the part of moral philosophy where we try to get clear about what justifies our holding one position rather than another. There's a controversy about the role to which one appeals to and is justified, it's appropriate to appeal to, moral intuitions. The fact that it just seems to me that such and such is a case. At the extreme end would be a bold view that says these things are incorrigible, they're infallible, one simply has to take them as givens and and build all of your moral theory in such a way that it conforms and accommodates all of these. At the other extreme is a view that says one shouldn't give any weight at all to moral intuitions. Singer sometimes has claimed something more analogous to that or at least claimed you shouldn't give any weight to moral intuitions at the first order level about particular cases reacting to hypothetical examples and the like. Myself, I'm drawn to a more moderate view, which says that intuitions can be mistaken, but they have a kind of initial prima facie epistemic weight, and so we use them as a building block for working up to our moral theories. It seems to me that, in fact, there is no way to do moral philosophy without having some kind of presumptive weight in favor of our intuitions. I think, in fact, as a kind of ad hominem remark, even Singer himself periodically appeals to intuitions. And so he's not really in a position to be utterly dismissive of them in the way that sometimes officially he claims to be. But the point about why speciesists need not be prejudiced is the fact that if I am building up my speciesist view on the basis of the fact that I have certain intuitions about how humans or perhaps members of other species may count in a special way, if this is backed by certain intuitions, as long as I'm prepared to say, as I am prepared to say, that intuitions have a kind of presumptive weight and so we can appeal to them both here and elsewhere, then I'm not using one kind of standard for this view that I wouldn't be prepared to endorse uh, for other views. And that's why I think one can't simply be dismissive of all forms of speciesism as a mere prejudice and nothing more.
0: If you go back to the analogy with racism, a racist would say, well, this is just my strong intuition that, say, blacks are different from whites.
1: So I think probably, strictly speaking, we shouldn't say that views are prejudiced or not. It's rather that people are prejudiced or not in holding those views. I believe that, in fact, if there were a racist who said, I just have the direct intuition, and it's not enough to say these words. They have to be sincerely reporting accurately that they have this intuition. And there are also complicated questions about the distinction between intuitions and just considered judgments. But if they sincerely are reporting the intuition, that white's count in a way that blacks don't, then I think that's not mere prejudice as long as they are equally prepared to endorse the appeal to intuitions in other cases. The view could still be mistaken, but it would be a mistake at that point to dismiss it as a mere prejudice. But I think it's interesting that classically racists don't say that. They appeal instead to the kind of empirical beliefs that I mentioned earlier, that blacks are less intelligent or that they're not trustworthy, they're dishonest or what have you. Then I come back to my point that those beliefs are held by racists on epistemic grounds that they would never consider adequate if one made a comparable claim that whites were shiftless on the basis of equally flimsy evidence. And so when those racists hold their racist beliefs, they are prejudiced. So I could equally imagine a speciesist who holds it for bad epistemic grounds. But again, if one imagines the speciesist, as I do imagine the speciesist, as somebody who says, I just have this intuition, and I believe more generally that intuitions count, then I think that's not a mere prejudice.
0: So does Peter Singer have other arguments that support the claim that speciesism is somehow an ill of our society?
1: The other main argument that Singer gives is an appeal to a principle that he calls equal consideration of interests, where he says, look, if we try to understand where does racism as a false view go wrong, it's counting like interests for one group more than like interests for another group. Where does sexism, when we take this to be a mistaken view, go wrong? It's counting the interests of one group more than the interests of another group. So if one accepts this Principled more generally than it seems to follow that we need to count the like interests of animals as much as the like interests of humans. And then Singer takes it to be fairly evident when you think about these medical experimentation cases and other things uh, that we don't in fact do that. And so we violate this moral principle. The reason I no longer find that persuasive is because it seems to me we have to now start asking ourselves, what does it count for interests to be like? It can't be that they have to be like in all ways. It's got to be that they're alike or not alike in relevant ways. And then that begs the question, what counts as relevant ways? Now, Singer is prepared to say that intensity is one of the dimensions, pains that are more intense than other pains. That's a relevant dissimilarity. Duration, that's a relevant similarity or dissimilarity. But then I want to say, but look, now the question becomes, does anything else count as a relevant similarity or dissimilarity? If the speciesist says, I think a relevant similarity or dissimilarity is, are these pains held by humans, or are they held by mere animals? The appeal to the principle of like consideration of interest, it seems to me, on the most natural reading, doesn't give us any guidance at that point. It doesn't tell us which are the considerations that make for like or dislike. Now Singer can come back and say, but isn't it just obvious, let's say, that when it comes to suffering that the only relevant considerations are intensity and duration? But I think that that's not at all obvious. To take something from another bit of moral philosophy, which not everybody's going to share, but I'll show you that it's at least an open question. Imagine that you and I are both in prison and are suffering miserably because of that. I've committed a crime and so deserve to be in prison, but you're utterly innocent and were framed and don't deserve to be in prison. Now somebody can come along and free one of us, but My pain and your pain may be equally intense and last equally long, but for all that, the fact that I deserve the suffering and you don't, that also seems a relevant consideration, and so it wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be appropriate to just say, but pain is pain. No, no, here's a consideration that for otherwise similar pains can still give us reason to count one more than the other. I want to say once the door is open in that way, it's an open question whether or not the fact that the pain is had by a person or a human being, a homo sapiens, whether that might count more. And so I think Singer's arguments against speciesism don't actually succeed. And yet for all that, it seems to me that he's been targeting the wrong position. The second thing that I came to realize as I revisited the issues, uh, my own view wasn't, despite the fact that I've just been defending speciesism, my own view isn't actually speciesism per se, at least not in this precise way that Singer was constructing it. He's gotten the view that most of us hold or would hold not quite right. And so we have to also describe this alternative position. Just to get
0: clear where we've come to already. Now we've looked at speciesism, the prejudice Peter Singer claims that many of us have towards members of our own species. And he used two arguments to try and defend the idea that that's something wrong, that speciesism is wrong. You've undermined those arguments, yet you're saying you're not a speciesist.
1: Right. So strictly speaking, the claim is that to be a speciesist is to believe that the interests of your own species count more than the interests of other species. Now, that can be interpreted at least two different ways, because after all, all the singers, readers and everybody listening to this podcast is a homo sapiens. And so the position could be, if we were to hear this in relativized terms count your own species more. My species happens to be Homo sapiens, and so I should count Homo sapiens more. But if I happen to have been some other species, then I should count members of that other species, my fellow species mates, more. So it's not that being Homo sapiens per se counts more. There's also an absolutist reading of the idea where we say, no, no, my species is Homo sapiens, and the crucial point is that Homo sapiens count more. And so even if somehow I wore another Species, I should count Homo sapiens more. And I think that the arguments for either of those are weak. The arguments for either of those positions being prejudice are weak. But I don't think that actually the view that I certainly hold or the view that most of us hold probably isn't best captured quite in those terms at all. So let me quickly try to sketch an alternative view. As a first pass, I think the crucial point is not to focus on whether or not we're Homo sapiens or even a member of my own species. I think we can quickly see that we'd be prepared to grant the same kind of status, the counting more, to members of certain other species— Initial examples at least have to be perhaps science fictional because it's not Transparent whether or not there are other species of the right sort. So let me give the the fictional example of Superman. For those of you who don't have the Superman mythology firmly emblazoned in your mind, Superman comes from another planet, the planet Kryptonite, Krypton rather. Uh, He's not himself a human being. He obviously looks like us, he's very similar to us, but he's not a human being. That's the crucial point. Now, the canonical villain in the Superman comics is a fellow who is a human named Lex Luthor. You can harm Superman with kryptonite and potentially kill Superman. So imagine that Lex Luthor is trying to kill Superman. I take it that our reaction, maybe not literally everybody's reaction, but I suspect anybody listening to this podcast, their reaction is going to be, it's wrong for Lex Luthor to kill Superman. And it's wrong in exactly the same way that it would be if Lex Luthor were trying to kill a human being. And the crucial point, again, is that Superman is not a member of my species, nor is he a member of the species Homo sapiens. And yet, if we agree that killing Superman is equally wrong, then that shows that focusing on the Homo sapiens species or your fellow species mate, that's not really the relevant issue. As a first approximation, the position's rather is he a person or not? The crucial point, I think, is not that he has two eyes. The crucial point is not that he looks like us, though he does, that's what allows him to pass himself off as Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter. The crucial point, I think, intuitively, is that there are certain properties that he shares with us, but at least in principle, they're not limited to Homo sapiens. They're the fact that he's a person, and this is a piece of philosophical jargon as I'm using it. In the standard philosophical fashion, I use this to stand for a being that is rational, self conscious, aware of itself as one being existing among others with a sense of its future and, and its past. Superman has those properties. And my suspicion is that, as, a, as again, it's as a first approximation of a more accurate description of the view we hold. It's by virtue of holding those properties that Superman counts. And similarly, if we were to go to Mars and discover intelligent Martians who were morally sensitive, who had culture, who had language, we learn their language, we communicate with them, we, we read their epics, admire their artworks. If they were persons, in short, we would come to feel that we ought to count their interests in the same way that our own interests count, even if they did not look humanoid at all. If they looked like a starfish, I think we would still think they count. And so I think the crucial point is not what do they look like, although that might have some psychological influence on us, on reflection. If we asked why do they count, the answer would be because they're persons. We're not so much speciesists, we're personists.
0: But then that might be just a description of what we are, and that might be just as much a prejudice as Singer alleges speciesism is.
1: Well, that's right. In principle, it could be a prejudice, and the view could still be mistaken. But, of course, at this point, I think we're doing a better job of accommodating our intuitions. And as I was arguing earlier, if one defends one's view by appeal to epistemic standards that one is prepared to hold elsewhere, then it's not a mere prejudice to hold this view. I should say, by the way, that this appeal to intuition, which I've been using, isn't, I think, a complete justification unto itself. It's kind of first steps. It allows us to get the right shape of the position, which then we have to move on at a later stage in our, in our moral theorizing to ask, can we build up a coherent theory about why a view like this might be correct? Can we connect it with other moral views that we hold? And all of that, I think, is important work, crucial work, because if we were to find we couldn't eventually do that, that would give you reason for now having second thoughts or maybe even ultimately abandoning the position that initially seemed so intuitively appealing. But if we're going to make progress in this area, it's important to at least get clear on the position to which we are attracted, and I think Singer got that wrong.
0: Now, if my intuitions, as they are, are that in many cases experiments done on cats are morally wrong, perhaps not all, how's that going to relate to your first stab at personism?
1: Good. I should make clear that although in principle one could be a personist and say persons count in a way that non-persons don't count morally at all. That would be, I think, a consistent view. It's not at all the view that I find attractive, certainly not one that matches my own intuitions. I don't want it at all to be thought that I think that animal interests don't count at all. In fact, I have some misgivings in sharing my views publicly, precisely because I'm afraid that people might come away thinking that what I'm doing is defending the claim that it's okay for us to treat animals, mere animals, any way at all. And I don't think that at all. I certainly think it is also the case that animal interests do count and that the way we eat animals for food is unacceptable, the vast bulk of animal experimentation completely unjustified, I think that. And yet for all that I also think that the interests of persons count for more. And to get to a point that we haven't yet touched on but it's important to get out, I also think that the interests of members of person species Their interests count for more even if they are not themselves persons. So let me remind you of a little thought experiment about the medical experiment where we do something on the lab rat, but we wouldn't do it not only on a fully blown, fully developed, fully cognitively functioning human like you and I, but we wouldn't do it even on a severely cognitively impaired human who is not a person who doesn't have the cognitive wherewithal to be self-conscious, self-aware, rational. And so if we're really going to match our intuitions, at least do a better job of matching our intuitions, we have to extend this kind of higher status not only to full-blown persons but to this other group. And I think that the crucial thought here is that this other group are beings who, even though they're not themselves persons, could have been Persons. There's a metaphysical truth about them, although they're not persons, they could have been. And I think that grounds, uh, we might say, a kind of intermediate moral status. It makes their interests count more than otherwise similar interests of mere animals. And so one issue we'd want to pursue would be is it really true that this merely modal, this is another philosopher's term, modal for these issues like could have, must, and so I'm saying that this possibility of having been a person, even though it didn't come to pass, that that mere modal modal possibility has some moral significance. I think that's itself an especially controversial part of the view that I'd want to put forward. I think that there are various cases that give it some support, and again, to do a, a full defense of the view, one would then want to embed this in a larger bit of moral philosophy where we see other areas where these types of modal considerations do moral work. However, the view is even more complicated because I think that this modal aspect has a kind of amplificatory Effect. So, other things being equal, the interests of modal persons might count more than otherwise similar interests of things that are not even modal persons. But we'll have other cases where the cognitively impaired human is so impaired that they're at a lower level, cognitively speaking, than some other animal, which is although not a person and not a modal person is nonetheless at a higher cognitive level, I think that this modal personhood bestows a kind of amplificatory status, but it doesn't mean it's a trump card. And so there might be cases where we still ought to count the interests of mere animals more than the interests of some non-person modal person. So the thing gets very complicated very, very quickly. But at least this is the sort of position that I think comes closer to matching our intuitive views. It's important to get that straight and then go on to ask, can we give a full-blown defense of it?
0: Shelley Kagan, thank you very much.
1: It's been my great pleasure.
0: For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.